Sunday night. We've been doing some study in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you take your Bibles and open to the 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Tell me something about this church at Corinth. What kind of church was it? It's a carnal church. It's a carnal church. Does that, can you be carnal and be saved? Yes, absolutely. You can be carnal and be saved. Unfortunately, many Christians are carnal. Praise God they're saved, but they are carnal. They're not walking in Christ. Some things to keep in mind as we study this book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a carnal church. And we remember that this church uh, had been invaded by the city. When the, when the church should have invaded the city, McKee Road Baptist Church needs to evade Bakersfield, California, spiritually speaking, amen, and not have the ways of the city invade us. And because they had been invaded by the city, they had a very casual view of sin, very casual view of sin. Uh, we need to have the view of sin that God does. We need to have his perspective. And we do have his perspective. We have the ability to see God, see sin as God sees it through his word. Well, let's go ahead and take opportunity now. Let's read chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that all, we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Edi and if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods, many and many, and lords many. But to us, there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge, for <clears throat> some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offended unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat, commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee, which has knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And though thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Verse 9, take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak that are weak. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd help me at this time to uh, say the things that you'd have me to say. May we take from this chapter and learn 
what it is that you're teaching us and, and get the idea. Dear Father, I pray that you would draw us closer to you. May we walk in the paths that you'd have set before us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The question that Paul addresses in chapter 8 through, actually through the uh, first part of 11, is whether it is permissible for Christians to eat meat that has been offered uh, sacrifice to idols. Now, <clears throat> we don't offer anything to idols. However, if you come around my house and I have barbecued for you, at times you might say, well, Brother Don, that was a sacrifice because I burned it. I used to like, uh, Alice has trained me to like, uh, uh, I love steak. Oh, I like steak. I like a good ribeye. How many like a good ribeye steak? Oh, I like a good ribeye steak. I used to burn it to a crisp. I like that kind of a charcoaly taste. I still do. But <clears throat> I learned that if you don't cook it so long, it's nice and juicy. So that's kind of nice. But they were having a problem here. They had a question here. They had a lot of questions, a lot of questions uh, about things like this. Uh, in Corinth, much of the meat available for human consumption, much of the meat that had been available for human, human consumption because they were sacrificing so often, had been sacrificed to idols. Uh, typically, part of the meat was burned on the altar. Part of it was burned for the priests, preserved for the priests, and part of it was consumed by the people for the sacrifices, and the rest was made available for sale. So he didn't know. He didn't know. There were two dimensions to the problem here. Two dimensions. One was whether it was permissible to eat meat served within the temple, and two was whether it was permissible to purchase meat that had been sacrificed to idols to eat it at home. This is an important question to them. Important question to them. Eating meat sacrificed to idols was a problem that, that uh, Apostle Paul dealt with in Rome as well as Corinth. If you read back in Romans chapter 14 and chapter 15, <clears throat> the problem was eating meat sacrificed to idols. Christians should welcome each other and abstain from judging one another. And this is kind of the nuts and bolts of the message tonight. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got an opinion. We have precept, we have principle, we have preference. So much of the time, we don't divide over precept. We don't divide over principle. But we will divide over preference. We will divide over preference. Romans 14, chapter 1 through 12. And he also emphasized here that no man put a stumbling block uh, to them that are weak. Romans 14, 13. <clears throat> Paul said that there's nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to the idols, but admonish this. He said, for meat destroy not the work of God. Romans 14, 20. The work of God, talking about the weaker brothers and weaker Christians. I guess my question tonight to you would be, do you consider yourself a stronger brother in Christ or are you a weaker brother in Christ? While the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols may have seem, may seem irrelevant, today, irrelevant today, what Paul has to say about the feelings of Christians and brothers and sisters is highly relevant. He calls those who are strong those who are strong, 
who understood that idols did not represent real gods and the meat had been sacrificed, to defer to those who are weak, to defer to those that are weak. There are other situations where this principle could apply today. Perhaps a careless attitude of money might tempt a weaker Christian to do something that might be dishonest. Perhaps careless words might create a, a, a problem in a relationship or might cause other problems. James said this in chapter 1, verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. <clears throat> the principle of love for the weaker brethren. And that's what it comes down to. This is actually a principle of loving a brother. There are things that I can do that should not... Uh, some people might say, well, I'm going to do them because there's nothing wrong with it. And yet, basically, the gist of this is if it's offensive to you, if it causes you to stumble, whenever, even when it's right, then I, I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't do it. <clears throat> so it's, it's difficult to generalize, but the, Paul's principle of love for the weaker person is dependent upon that immediate situation. You come into these situations at random, you don't know they're going to come up, and you go, oh, if I do that, I recognize, and this is where you've got your spiritual ears on, your spiritual eyes are open, and you're aware of what's going on, you realize this might cause a problem there. This might cause a problem there. Applying Paul's principle of love requires that we're alert and sensitive to those that might be led astray, led astray by our behavior. You know, when Alice and I had children in the house, and now, of course, if we have children in the house, it's grandchildren. <clears throat> and if it's not grandchildren, then it's somebody else's children, and I don't know who that might be. But at any rate, I'm reminded that when we were <clears throat> raising our children, we took these little plastic things and stuck them in the wall sockets. You know what I'm talking about? Put them in the wall socket, right? Why? Because children go, oh, there's a hole. Let me go get something metal and stick it in there. Well, that's not a good idea, George. That's not a good idea. So we would do that to uh, protect them when they were young. Uh, we'd also, you know, we'd run a bath for them. And then we'd go and we'd test the water. Want to make sure that the water was not too hot to put them in the tub. Uh, <clears throat> we made sure that the, when they were playing and when we were buying them toys, we tried not to buy those real small toys. Because what does a child do? Everything goes in the mouth. Everything goes in the mouth. And so, you know, as an aside to that, we found that the best gift seemed to always be not what the actual present was, but the box it came in. How many are with me on this? Our children would get the toy out, and before long, they would be in the box, playing in the box, and I thought, my goodness, I've spent all this money on this, and they could have, I could have gotten by with just going down to Lowe's and buying some boxes. <clears throat> we put a fence. We made sure that our yard was fenced so that they would be free from going out in the road or perhaps someone coming in and harming them. We put the sharp knives and uh, up out of the way so they couldn't cut themselves. 
Being a good parent meant that we should always be alert. A parent can never sleep that very soundly, very soundly. I learned not to sleep too soundly when uh, my daughter Emily one night uh, had walked into our room. I don't know, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. And you know how you can sense somebody's there? And I, I opened my eyes, and there she was, eyeball to eyeball with me. I don't, can't remember why, but it frightened us both, I will say that. But being a parent, mean, being a good parent means always being on alert, being on high alert. Being a good child of God means being alert, being aware. Paul calls, it, calls us to that same kind of sensitive, sensitivity to other people, children and adults, uh, so that we might be the stronger Christian. So number one, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, as touching the things offered unto idols, we know we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, and charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is none of him. The same is none of him. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, in chapter 7, Paul addressed questions at the Corinthians had asked about marriage. And now he's turning to another concern, food that has been sacrificed to idols. Last part of that verse, we know that we all have knowledge. Paul quotes back to the Corinthian uh, church here, something that they had said to him in his letter. And so he's gonna go through this. <clears throat> now we gotta remember that the Corinthian church was a, uh, is a Greek city and the Greeks we're high on philosophy. Philosophy. It comes from two Greek works, philos, which is love, and sophos, which is wisdom. So knowledge. They pride themselves on their wisdom. They pride themselves on their knowledge, their sophistication. Uh, they said, we have knowledge. They were an educated people. They were not an ignorant people. <clears throat> and that was probably part of their problem but they aren't talking about all the people, they were talking about just themselves. We have knowledge, we have knowledge. And knowledge is a great gift, certainly, certainly is. But they had become very prideful in their knowledge, in their knowledge. Later in this letter, Paul addresses their love of knowledge when he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse two. He said, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Sometimes we get to go on through our Christian walk and we get to go on through the motions. We, we're crossing all the T's, we're dotting all the dies. I said that for the engineer. We're doing all of those things because they've got to be done. But if we get to doing those things and we forget to love, then we're nothing. Knowledge without Christian love tends toward arrogance tends toward arrogance. Knowledge puffs up. It inflates with pride. You know, oh, I know this, this, and this. You know, I know this. I don't know a lot about things. I used to know quite a bit about baseball, I think. Uh, stats, numbers, I like those sorts of things. And I can sit and talk stats all day long with you. But still in that, you have to watch because we kind of get puffed up because, oh, I know something you don't know. And this was just like the Corinthians church here, the Corinthians. 
Knowledge puff ups, puffs up, it inflates with pride, but if, it, but if any man love God, verse 1c, it says, this is Paul's answer to the Corinthian statement. We all have knowledge. We all have knowledge. You know, puffed up. Paul, this is one of these key words that Paul used quite a bit. And a matter of fact, I think he used this about five times in this uh, First Corinthians. Five times. Talking about being puffed up. Being inflated with pride. The child of God has no reason to be puffed up. Child of God has no reason to be inflated with pride. Why? I am nothing. I am nothing. He is everything. I must decrease. He must increase. He must increase. But while the knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It edifies. It blesses. It blesses both the one who loves and the one who is loved. Isn't that neat? Love. It blesses. It blesses. Given a choice between knowledge and love, we would be far better to choose love. You know? I don't need to know all those things. I just need to know how to love you. I need to know how to show my love to you. This is something that bothers me. When I see a child of God that seemingly has a lot of knowledge in the word of God, and yet they don't display love. That doesn't mean that the person we're displaying the love toward is perfect. Certainly we know that we're not perfect. But as God loved us, we should love others. Verse 2 says, And if any man think he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as ought he ought to know. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about presumptuous knowledge. He's talking about arrogant knowledge. He's talking about conceited knowledge. He's saying that a person who presumes to have knowledge isn't likely to have it, at least not to the extent that he needs it. We have a term, know-it-all. Anybody ever met a know-it-all? Come on, be honest. Has anybody ever met what we would consider a know-it-all? That's a little judgmental, I guess, there, folks, but I have. I met somebody. I met people that <clears throat> just know everything, and they've done everything. <clears throat> My goodness. Paul is saying a person who presumes to have knowledge isn't likely to have it, at least not to the extent he thinks he does. His assumption that he knows the facts makes him unwilling, guess what, to learn anything else. I've got all I need. I don't need anything else. I don't need anything else. His little bit of knowledge, therefore, becomes a barrier for him to learn anything else. <clears throat> Our word sophomore is a good word at this point. Sophomore comes from two Greek words. Sopho, sophos, which means wise, and moros, which means foolish. Isn't that interesting? Sophos is wise, moros is foolish. It's kind of like an oxymoron, right? Isn't it? Okay. <clears throat> the word sophomore then means wise fool. Wise fool. So if you're in the 10th grade, maybe just say I'm a 10th grader. Okay. Um, It alludes to the fact that a sophomore is far along, and get this, is far along enough in the educational process, second of four years of high school, and knows just enough to be dangerous. Just enough to be dangerous. You know, my senior year, <clears throat> I was in chemistry, 
And for some reason, Daner, the, the instructor said, I need you to be my helper. Well, I guess I don't know. You know and he put me back there with all those chemicals. That was a little dangerous, you know. Uh, fortunately, I wasn't the type of guy to go, well, let's put a little of this here and a little bit of this here because you can go home and you can do some real damage by just putting some things you've got under your kitchen sink together. That could be pretty bad. But you know just enough, a sophomore knows just enough to be dangerous. Someone put it like this, the best substitute for being wise is being 16. Any 16-year-olds in here? No. no. The best substitute for being wise is being sub 16. You'll get that later. Paul was clearly not impressed with the knowledge of these Corinthian Christians. And he's telling them that their prideful knowledge isn't likely to be true knowledge. Verse 3 says, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. <clears throat> The truly wise person is the one who knows God. Or the truly wise person is the one who loves God. Who loves God. If any man love God, the same is known of him. In this short verse, Paul is switching gears from the emphasis of knowing to loving. From knowing to loving. The key to the Christian life isn't knowing all the answers, folks. You don't have to know all the answers. I don't know all the answers. My goodness, I don't, know, I don't even know the questions. All right? But we still have the ability to love God. In spite of my lack of knowledge, I have the ability to love God. <clears throat> the key to the Christian life is loving God. Do you love God tonight? I pray that you do. You know, and if we love God, we should want to have his knowledge in, him, in us. That'll come from by reading his word. But love God. Love God. Paul promises that the person who loves God will be known by God. Known by God. <clears throat> we find that knowledge will come to an end in chapter 13. But God's eternal. So he is the one known by God. So we have knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs us up, but love builds us. Love will build others. Secondly, in verses 4 through 6, as concerning, <clears throat> therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For there be, for though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we by him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and uh, we by him. So back to verse 4. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. So verse 4. In this verse, Paul is quoting the Christian, the Corinthians, who have said no idol is anything in the world and there is no other God but one. Those two questions, or those two statements, imply that if idols don't really exist, then Yahweh, or God, is the only God. Then idols aren't gods. 
Idols aren't really gods. Therefore, meat sacrificed to idols has no religious significance. So it must be permissible. It must be permissible for Christians to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But then in verses 5 and 6, uh, Paul will agree that God's the only God and idols are not really gods. However, he also deals with the assumptions of these Christians that idols aren't really God. Verse 5, it says, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many. While Paul agrees that the gods behind the idols are not real, they must seem real to those that are worshiping them. We have churches today that worship idols. And to them, they are very real to them. Very real to them. In his letter to the Galatian, Paul tells those Christians that before they became Christians, they had been in bondage to those who by nature are not God. That's in Galatians 4.8. And while those idols may not have been gods, they did possess a demonic power over them. And before we kind of dismiss this and think, well, that really doesn't have anything to do with me, stop and think back with me. Go back into history just a few years just a few years. Anybody know the name Jim Jones? Jim Jones. You've heard the term, they drank the Kool-Aid? Literally. Literally. They drank the Kool-Aid. I think there were over 900 that died that day. Jim Jones led his followers to a mass suicide in Guyana. And then how about the name David Koresh? David Koresh. Waco, Texas. Waco, Texas. Those men were not true prophets. They were not true gods. But their power over the lives of their followers were very powerful. Demonic, you could say. And they were deadly. They were deadly. So, when you think about this, you must not assume that a false religion is benign to this. There are millions of people that offer and worship at the altars of materialism, celebrity, drugs, and you fill in the blanks. You fill in the blanks. Verse 6, but, there, uh, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. <clears throat> For the Greeks, there might have been many gods, and there were many gods and many lords. For the Christian, there was one Lord. There was one God. There was one Savior, one Father, God the Father, Jesus Christ. Not multiple gods, not the multiple gods, but one, but one. So we had knowledge puffs up, but love builds. We have no idol is anything. And then in verses seven and eight, not everyone understands that. Let's read 7 and 8. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we better, neither if we eat not are we worse, the worse. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. This takes us back to verse 1 where Paul's quoting the, 
Corinthian Christians saying we all have knowledge. We all have knowledge. <clears throat> the knowledge that they claimed was that there was no reality behind the idols to, to whom the people are making sacrifice. <clears throat> so Paul's directly refuting their claim that all of us possess knowledge. Uh, it goes on, verse 7, 4, Some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto the, an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. <clears throat> Many people think of idols as gods. We talked about that. And of the meat that has been sacrificed as sacred. If the idol is a god, then certainly that meat that was sacrificed to them, sacred, was sacred. Their beliefs color their perception of the world. If they were to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, that would become in their minds a sacred meal. It would draw them toward the idol and away from Christ. See the problem? What are the idols you have in your life today? What are your idols? Oh, I don't have any idols. You may not have any statues or anything. What are your idols? What are your idols? If they saw Christian leaders eating meat, sacrificed to idols, particularly within the temple, uh, that would seem as an endorsement to idol worshiping. Verse 8, but meat commended us not to God, for neither if we eat it are we the better, neither if we eat it not are we the worse. <clears throat> Food will not commend us to God, he's saying. So whether you eat it or not, it's not going to make you any better or the worse. And then lastly, be careful not to become a stumbling block. And this is where we can kind of focus on a little bit. <clears throat> it says in verse 9, But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Remember, I kind of let in with the things that we ought to be able to do. I have the right to do this. Oh, that's silly. You have a problem with that, you know? And we're, again, we, this falls in the area of preference so much. You have a problem with that? Some people don't go to movies. Other people go to movies. Uh, I've watched uh, from the 50s up to this day, and I've watched as the church has kind of followed along um, the world in our standards and how we've moved. We, we, we've kept a distance, but we keep sliding with them. I'm not, I'm not trying to preach preferences, I'm just trying to make the point that something that's very important to you may not be important to somebody else. And you may not be able to scripturally give them a good scriptural reason why, but you may feel and believe in your heart that God would not have you be a part of that. Well, praise God. Don't put that on somebody else. Don't put that on someone else. For if any man, verse 10, see thee which has knowledge sit at meat in the, in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which, uh, things which are offered to idols? And though thy knowledge shall be the weak, and though thy knowledge shall, be, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Huh. 
Hmm. Sinning against the brethren, the weaker brethren, because I can. I have the right, but it's a sin against your weaker brother. The Bible says you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat take, make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. You see what Paul said there? Let's read it again. He says, Where if, wherefore, if meat, if my weaker brother has a problem in this area with me doing this, well, guess what? As long as this world is standing, I'll never eat it again. Why? He had the right to. Why? It's because he loves his brother. He's not puffed up in himself. He loves his brother. Verse 9 says, but take heed by any means lest, uh, I'm sorry, let me try it again. By, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours, this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Liberty is translated power or authority. I have the authority. I have the right. Americans say that. I have the right. We, I have the right freedom of speech. I have the right to bear arms. Hmm. Liberty here. It's an authority. God gives us the liberty to manage our own lives and keeping the principles and precept of his word and then allowing him and through his Holy Spirit to help divide us in those areas of preference. However, when you have authority, you have this liberty, guess what comes along with it? Responsibility. Responsibility. I don't have a right to live my, white, my, my life in such a way that affects you negatively, that causes you to stumble. I might be thinking, oh, George, but I don't have the right. And I'll not do it because I love George. Because I love George. Verse 11, and though and through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Go back to Paul said knowledge puffs up. And now he's saying that knowledge has the power to destroy when we use it without consideration for our weaker brother. Verse 12. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Keep that in mind. Ye sin against Christ. Paul's establishing a link, a direct line between our sin and Christ. If we exercise our Christian freedom in ways that might endanger the faith of our Christian brothers and sisters, then we sin against Christ. In verse 13, wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Quite a statement, Paul. Quite a statement. Paul's going to refrain from any action when all along he has the right to. He has the liberty to. But he says, wait a minute. I love my brother. I love my sister. I'm not going to do that if it's going to cause him to stumble. Oh my goodness, some of us hard-nosed Baptists, I'm going to do it because I have the liberty to do it. Well, let me ask you a question. Where's the love of Christ being displayed in all of that? Where's the love of Christ being displayed in all of that? 
And then you know what Paul did? He's implying here to these Christian of Corinth, follow my example. Follow my example. Do you love your brother and sister in Christ? Are you the stronger brother? Then don't cause your weaker brother or sister to stumble. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your truth of your word. And though, Lord, sometimes we look at it and we go, hmm, uh, that doesn't apply to us right now. But, and yet it does. And yet it does. There are areas in our lives and walk while we have the liberty to live our lives because you've given us the liberty to do that a certain way. We are to be cognizant, be aware of our brothers and sisters in Christ that are weaker. God, that will not do anything that might cause them to stumble. Lord, may, our, may your love shine through us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have any need of the altar tonight, as we stand with heads bowed and eyes closed,